Well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Um, if you didn't bring one or you're new here, there's probably one, hopefully, in your row somewhere. You could use that one. This morning, I'm going to do my best to shorten the sermon a little bit. I'll do my best. <laughs> um, because at the end, I want to give a few minutes to talking about uh, David and Jamie McHale. Uh, we're presenting David to the congregation on March 8th. He'll be preaching that morning as um, a candidate for our new associate pastor of Connection. So I'll say more about that at the end. I want to leave a little time for that. In Acts chapter 6, we come to what is one of my favorite stories within the whole book of Acts. And I longed all week long to read to you the entire passage. And every time I did so in practice, it took 10 minutes. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to shorten it and excerpt a little bit of it. Um, and then we'll pray and, and then we'll spend some time studying it. But Acts chapter 6, Stephen, this newly appointed deacon, if you will, uh, runs into trouble, shall we say, with the Sanhedrin, the, the, the ruling body of the, the Jewish people in Jerusalem shortly thereafter he's installed to serve. So we pick up the story in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. I'm going to read there into chapter 7 a little bit, and then we'll come to the end of 7 and read that and then pray. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, meaning the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, we hear that and we think, cute. And yet, whenever a Bible, in the Bible, when an angel shows up, it's a fearsome thing. It's a weighty thing. It's an awesome, awe-inspiring thing. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Stop there. He, he goes through... Abraham and the patriarchs and Joseph and Moses and we're going to skip all the way over to verse 51. He, 
moves through redemptive history, the Abraham to Joseph to Moses to then quickly David and the prophets and highlighting God's rejection or the people's rejection of God appointed leaders. And then we come to verse 51. You stiff necked people, Stephen says, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. This is speaking of Jesus. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Would you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, as we study this story in the book of Acts, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves within it the same way Stephen saw himself within the story of the Old Testament. Lord, that we would study this passage as though we were heirs of this story, as though our roots go back into this passage. Not as a distant story of people and places and facts and events. But in such a way that we know that we are in the spiritual lineage of Stephen and the early church even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the interesting things about being human is that so often... Uh, when we love something, we want other people to love that same thing too. You know, see that behind so much of, you know, social media can get twisted and strange, but at the heart of it is just, I like this, would you like it too? We do this with our favorite songs and musicians, and, and, and it's one thing to, you know, to listen to um, the headphones, whether working out or in the office or the whatever in the car, but it's another thing to then have four people in your car singing the same song with you, Right? Or even to go to a concert, it's sort of that just same thing just writ large that we all love this band and isn't it fun to all sing together type of thing. What we love, we want to share. And I know as a pastor, I'm supposed to be, you know, current and trendy and, and reference um, modern things. So like I, if I was going to reference a movie, I, I would do 1917 or uh, the trailer that was just released for Stranger Things um, from Russia. But I'm going to go back to 1971. How many people know the movie Brian's Song? 
Does anybody, like, okay, I see some hands in the back. Oh, a couple there. All right, more than I thought. More than first service, actually. Um, so this is, I feel, I'm going to reference a movie that no one knows, but a handful of us. Yeah, it's 49 years old. But the premise of this movie, it's two football players, and, and one gets cancer and, and is dying, and it's set in the 60s, and, and there's race relations. It's, it's all of that. But there's this classic line, you YouTube just this line, but where the, one of the main characters says, I love Brian Piccolo, that's the other guy, and I want you all to love him too. Like that's just, that's the line from Brian's song that everybody knows if you've seen the movie. This sermon is gonna be a little different than normal. I'm just gonna kind of celebrate with you <laughs> if you'll be willing to join me in five reasons I love Stephen and I want you to love him too. Sort of took the idea from, um, yeah, the movie Brian's song. My dad uh, had us as a family watch it growing up. But um, also John Piper last year wrote a book, 30 Reasons I Love the Apostle Paul. And so I'm not going to give you 30 reasons on Stephen. I did write, I made it to seven or 18 <laughs> in my own list this week. But I just want to give you five reasons I love Stephen and want you to love him too. And as silly as that format might feel for a sermon outline, I don't know that it's actually that unfitting given the way that Luke presents Stephen to us. What I mean is there's this question that sort of hangs over this passage, which is, why is it so long? Why does it take 10 minutes to read the passage? And I don't, what I don't mean is, like, why did Stephen preach or speak as long as he did? Like, he did what he did. But there are all sorts of speeches and sermons throughout the book of Acts, and none of them are recorded by Luke as, as long as this one. There's a story in the, in, near the middle of the end of the book of Acts where Paul speaks until midnight and a guy falls out of a window asleep. <laughs> That's a story we'll come to a long time from now, but that happens. In fact, even, even if you think about chapter 2, this significant moment of Pentecost in redemptive history, Peter, that very important sermon... Acts chapter 4, or excuse me, 2, verse 40, Luke just says, and with many other words, he bore witness and exhorted the people. So, like, he just excerpts the sermon. Why does Stephen's sermon get left long? I think it's because Luke loved it, and he wants us to love it too. So, let's get into that a little bit, because I, I think the reason Luke loved it was that it could have been tempting if we put ourselves in the, the shoes of these early Christians, or sandals, perhaps, <laughs> to feel like ministry is that thing that those apostles do, right? It's the thing that Peter does. It's the thing that John does. It's the thing that the pastor does, the professional Christians. And those moments of persecution, those scary moments, that's for them. And Stephen comes along rising out of the ordinary ranks of Christians as an ordinary Christian, and yet for, through the power of the Spirit, he is extraordinary. And Stephen's death sparks this wildfire of mission that will carry us through the rest of the book. The gospel that begins in Jerusalem is going to the ends of the earth, even through persecution. So that's, that's some of the setup there. Here, here are the five reasons. I love Stephen because his life exudes humility. I love Stephen because his life exudes humility. He's chosen to wait on tables. Uh, that's, that's how he gets featured here at the beginning of chapter 6. 
Some widows were being neglected, and I spent a good bit of time on that last week, and they chose Stephen and six others to wait on those tables. If you weren't here, let me just read that very briefly. Chapter 6, verses 2 through 5. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, which is said later of Stephen, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to say Philip and the other five, seven in total. And, and again, I love that Stephen's life exudes humility. Now the charge against Stephen is that he doesn't know the Old Testament, or at least he what he knows of it, he's misspeaking about it, either because he doesn't know or he's doing it intentionally. And what we don't read is Stephen puffing out his chest saying, how dare they say that I don't know what I'm talking about? Instead, what he does is humbly walk through the Old Testament. He was able to do more, but he was willing to wait on tables if that's what his community needed. And if that's what he felt the Lord was calling him to do. You know, it reminds me, it just causes me to reflect from it. So many people get caught up in these kind of great moments of Christianity, the, the, the persecution moments where they rise up or the, the controversial thing. It, it, most of the time comes not from someone seeking that out, but someone just faithfully serving wherever the Lord would have them. There's a line in The Fellowship of the Ring, the first of the Lord of the Rings um, Novels, perhaps less obscure than the movie Brian's song, <laughs> uh, but still a little nerdy. Um, for some of us, we like this. But, but one of my favorite scenes in that book here comes when Frodo is speaking with Gandalf. And Frodo says, I wish it need not have happened in my time, this need to take the ring to Mordor, this need to wrestle um, for war against great evil. Frodo says, I wish it didn't happen now. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us. I just look out at people who show up week after week here at church, and I know you didn't choose, many of you, the circumstances you find yourself in. And I might not have chosen it for you. And yet, as we look at Stephen's life and the humility exude and the way that God worked through him and the way that God met him in that difficult season, I'm encouraged to say that God will be pleased to do the same for us. I love Stephen as well because he loves God more than anything else. I love Stephen because he loves God more than anything else. We talk about self-preservation sometimes as a bad thing, and it certainly can become a bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing, right? In politics, when politics exists just to preserve power or, you know, your spot in the Senate or the House or the presidency, self-preservation can become a bad thing, but by itself, it's not a bad thing. The Bible speaks of you and I as made in God's image. Human beings have dignity and value and worth. And there's something right about valuing life, our own and, and others. And so when we celebrate heroes, 
whether soldiers or, or say a fireman who runs into a burning building, what we're not saying is that the person didn't care about their own life. What we're saying is they value something more than their own life. And what I read as I read Stephen, his short life, but at least in the ministry spotlight perspective, it was short. Um, see, he loved God more than his own life. And that gave him a backbone made of rebar. He was strong and sturdy. Because when he tells this story of Old Testament redemption, he's able to do so without ignoring sin. All right, he's speaking to people who have rejected the Messiah. They have rejected God. They say ostensibly that they believe in God, but they don't believe in God. All they want is power, self-preservation in the worst sense. And Stephen has to call them on that. I think the way he's able to do that is by caring more about God than what people say about him. He's able to show us our need for a savior. We see that especially at the end. In the interest of time, let's not put it back on the screen, Kevin. But, but he speaks of them as stiff-necked people, resisting the Holy Spirit and rejecting the righteous one. Those were strong words. I don't know whether he said them with tears in his eyes or pointing his finger or both. I've said before here at church, a, a pivotal season in my life was the season in college where I showed up at a Christian sports camp that changed everything about everything and went into that moment at the camp, pretty low moment in life and God met me there. But one of the ways, I, I don't often get this specific, but I'll, I'll say this, was, was during one of the sessions after kind of, you know, it's a camp, there's different things you do and then there's, you know, chapel type things. But after that, they broke up into men's and women's groups and uh, the guys were together and there was this panel of speakers. And I can, um, more so than any other of the other messages, I remember it being strong and sharp about, about what it means to follow God as a man and what it doesn't mean. And I remember just being terribly convicted. But I'm thankful for those men who sat on that panel and said hard but strong things. I look at Stephen's life and see the way he speaks the word they need to hear even if they don't have the ears to hear it at the time. Perhaps the application there for us is to not fear knocking the, or to, to not be so fearful that we have to knock the rough edges off of Christianity as we share it with others. Now, it's not to say we need to be jerks and arrogant and bold about it. There is this balance there, of course, and I don't know exactly the recipe for getting that right, but I think the big way we do go about getting it right is by having God as more important to us than anything else. The third reason I love Stephen is because he understands the big story of redemption. Stephen understands the big story of redemption. He can, off the cuff, recount the history of God's dealing with the Old Testament saints. I don't know how many times he uses the phrase, our fathers, like he, he, he places himself, if you go back and you read this passage in detail, he puts himself in the story. He sees it, our fathers, it's not just your fathers. Now he does your fathers at the end. When it's, they persecuted the prophets, so do you. But most of the time as he's telling it, it's his story. He outlines from verses two to eight the story of 
redemption through Abraham, and then 9 to 16 through Joseph, and then 17 through 34, the life of Moses, and then 35 through 50, Israel's apostasy, that is their turning away from the Lord and the prophets and all of that, and then climaxing with their present predicament and rejecting God's Messiah. But he doesn't just give the facts. That's what I want to focus on for just a second. He doesn't just give the details. There were these people here and they did this and that. Sort of the way if you have history class, you're like, well, history is boring. Because it's just people and dates and things. Often. But he does it with a view to redemptive history. In other words, he doesn't just talk about Moses, but what Moses points to. Look with me at verses 36 and 7. This is in the section dealing with Moses' life. And this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt. And at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So that's kind of Moses bringing God's people out of Egypt. Verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, and he quotes Deuteronomy. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Obscure passage, perhaps, in the book of Deuteronomy, but in the Gospel of John, as Jesus shows up, they begin to talk about Jesus. Is this the prophet who Moses spoke about, who was like, Moses was a prophet, but there was a real big prophet coming? And that's just one example, but continually throughout his speech, he's not just giving the the people and the things, the temple and the wilderness and Joseph and all of these God-appointed leaders, but he's giving who these God-appointed leaders and things, the sacrifices in the temple, pointed to, namely Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, number four, I love Stephen because his life and his death show us more of Jesus. And Jesus is really great. I love Stephen because his life and death show us more of Jesus, and Jesus is really great. Stephen follows in the footsteps of Jesus. Again, we didn't read all of what happens here, but even the details we did read, perhaps you were already seeing some parallels. One commentator, a guy named Daryl Bach, wrote a super fat book. Actually, it's two books on the Gospel of Luke, and then another really fat one on the book of Acts. They've been very helpful to me as I've been studying through, and we've been preaching through both of these books But he notes a number of the parallels between the life of Jesus and Stephen's life as well. Both Stephen and Jesus appear in a trial-like setting. They both suffer the testimony of false witnesses. They both mention the temple's destruction. They both, Stephen and Jesus, speak of the temple being made with hands. They're both charged with blasphemy. They're both asked by the high priest to speak. They both, as they're dying, commit their spirits to God. And they both ask God to forgive those killing them. I think Luke presents Stephen to us as a life patterned after his Lord Jesus. And so he shows us Jesus that way, but there are other ways as well. Just give you one other way that Stephen shows us Jesus Uh, There were promises and predictions that Jesus made that then become fulfilled in the life of Stephen in the early church. So just give you one here. Luke chapter 21. There's a couple lines in Luke chapter 21 that show up in kind of alluded to type ways, not overtly, but they're in the background and just kind of touched on. Let me read this section from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 21, verses 10 to 16. 
And then he said to them, that's Jesus, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. Sounds familiar. Like, that sounds like what's happening in the book of Acts. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. If you go through the book of Acts, that's what's going to happen. Then Jesus says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now, now here's the lines I want to key on. Jesus says, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Which is like a strange thing, right? Jesus says, all these really hard things are going to happen, but you determine not to plan what you're going to say. Like, well, that's crazy. I'm a planner, Jesus. Like, if if this happens, I'm going to say this. If this happens, I'm going to say this. And if this happens, well, then I'll be ready to say this. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Just settle it beforehand in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict, which is exactly what's said of Stephen in chapter six. You will be delivered up, Jesus says, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your heads will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Wait, but if they're gonna stone me, How does a hair on my head not perish? (laughs) He's talking about a a greater eternal life and a greater perishing that can't touch God's children. And so I love Stephen, all that to say. Because Stephen shows us more of Jesus. Not just us, those who are there in the book of Acts. Don't miss that little detail about a man named Saul standing there. This young Jewish leader who we know more as Paul. Acts chapter 22 verse, yeah, chapter 22 verse 20. Paul, Saul, looks back at this event and mentions Stephen as a pivotal moment for him. I think the early church thought about Stephen a lot. And just finally, I'll give you this. I love Stephen because... He reminds us that God's presence is near to those who follow him. God's presence is near to those who follow them, even when life is really, really hard. If we look closely at Stephen's speech, something really neat happens. You realize, um, well, I'll say it this way. You don't need the temple for God to draw near. As Stephen walks through the story of Abraham, then Joseph, then Moses. You realize the temple's not built yet, and yet God's with his leaders and with his people. You can be in the wilderness, and God can love you, we read. You can be in slavery in Egypt, and God can see and hear and know. In fact, just look at one little section, Acts chapter 7, verse 33 and 34. Then the Lord said to him, that's the Lord saying to Moses, this is Stephen recounting it, right? But the Lord said to Moses, the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So Moses does. And God says to Moses, 
I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. These are classic lines in the book of Exodus that get repeated over and over. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. See, as you look closer at what the things that Stephen says, you realize that the content of what he's saying would have encouraged him as a speaker. Like he's talking consistently about all these appointed leaders who have then been rejected by unbelievers. And what's happening to Stephen? He's preaching and God's appointed leader at the time and being rejected. God is drawing near. But the way we see this most especially, of course, is the end. The way we see God drawing most especially near to Stephen during the most difficult times in our lives is at the end. Look again how the passage ends. Now when they heard these things, the Sanhedrin, the same people who killed Jesus now are going to kill their first martyr, in the early church. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing, it says, at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him likely pushing him down a hill and pelting him with rocks. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Verse 55, verse 56, when Stephen dies, Jesus stands. The Apostles' Creed says that Jesus ascended to the throne of the universe and sits at the right hand of God. The Nicene Creed says that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. The evangelical free church, the denomination that our church is a part of in our 10-point statement of faith says that Jesus has ascended to the throne of the universe after his death, life, death, and resurrection and he sits at the right hand of God. And all of those statements of faith and many others say that because the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament say that Jesus sits at the right hand of God except for one place. When Stephen dies... Jesus stands. I love Stephen's story because it reminds us that in our most difficult moments, God draws near. Lift up your heads, church. Be encouraged. We asked the question at the beginning, why is this passage so long? At least, why does Luke, as he recounts to us the book of Acts, leave it so long? 
As persecution increased in the early church, I think there was the temptation to pull back and say, well, these big moments, the scary moments, well, those are for the Apostle Peters and those are for the Johns who have been with Jesus from the beginning and the other apostles and those main disciples. It's for the pastors and the professional Christians. And Stephen's life shows us both then and now, to millions of ordinary Christians like you and I throughout church history, that following God is hard, but it's worth it. Stephen's death sparks a wildfire of mission. His life was brief, but it was bright. His life is like this flare gun shot across the night sky in the book of Acts, that when he lands... The pages of the book of Acts ignite with a flame of mission. And the gospel is going to go out from the book or from the city of Jerusalem in new and profound ways. I like to think maybe 20 or 30 years later, the apostles and the disciples and the early church, they're sitting around a campfire and they're going, man. Peter preached some good sermons, didn't he? I mean, there was the time with the people and the thing and thousands, right? They say, yeah. There was other time where Peter preached and the thousands and yeah. And then Paul, what about Paul, right? He had a few good ones too, didn't he? And then they say, oh, speaking of good ones, (laughs) there was Stephen who had a really good one. I think Luke wants us to love Stephen. He wants us to know that long or short, we're to make our lives count for Jesus. John Piper, he he had that book I referenced, 30 Reasons I Love the Apostle Paul. And one of Piper's most famous sermons, it's not... um, it's not the Apostle Paul's most famous sermon, right? It's Pipe, one of Piper's most famous sermon. This is from memory. But he says something to the effect, you don't have to know a lot of things to make your life count in this world. You just have to know a few things and to be gripped by them. You have to know a few things that are weighty and glorious and life-changing. And you have to know them in such a way that you would give your life for them. And those are the people who change the world. I don't think Stephen knew everything about everything, but he knew a few things about Jesus and he held them deeply. And I want you and I to be like him. I'm gonna pray and then just talk for a few minutes about where we're at as a church and just be a couple minutes and then we'll pray again and invite the worship team up. But let's, let's pray here about this sermon and this passage and what God is doing among us. Heavenly Father, I, I look at this life of Stephen and it could be intimidating in the sense that where does that type of passion, where does that risk-taking, truth-telling power come from? And if it merely came from Stephen, well, we might as well just give up and go home. But I'm encouraged because Stephen didn't come from just being Stephen. Stephen came from the gospel power. He came from being changed. He came from being like one of us to being used in extraordinary ways. And I just pray 
for my friends here this morning that whatever challenges we're facing as we serve and love you in the power of the gospel, that you would draw especially near. And either ways that feel big and extravagant like Stephen or ways that feel very ordinary, you would help us to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.